Thank you, Steve. Let's look, look, look to the Lord together in prayer. Father, as we come now to consider this great subject of brotherly affection, we ask you, Lord, not only to teach us, but, Lord, to equip us to show this love towards one another and our brethren everywhere. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're approaching a famous day in, in English history. It certainly means more to the people of the British Isles than it does to we Americans. But it marks an important moment in the history of the world because it gave to Great Britain the naval superiority to rule the seas. The event is the Battle of Trafalgar, in which the British Navy, under the command of Vice Admiral Lord Nelson, defeated a combined fleet of the Spanish and French. The event took place on October 21st in 1808. And its interest to us today has to do with a world-famous signal that was sent by Nelson to the fleet a little before noon on that day. It has become one of the most repeated phrases from any battle in history. Because electronic signals didn't exist, you couldn't communicate by electronics at the time, ships communicated by flag signals and various colored and patterned flags were used to represent words and letters and numbers. And these signals would instruct ships in the fleet how to maneuver, when to engage the enemy, when to disengage the enemy, and other messages. And it was customary before a battle for the commander to send out a message of encouragement to the sailors. And several of these short messages have become famous in one way or another, but none like this one. It involved raising 13 different flags in 12 configurations. It took four minutes to send the message. But when it was received throughout the fleet, it was met by cheers that echoed out over the water from every ship when they saw the signal. It said simply, England expects that every man will do his duty. England expects that every man will do his duty. And I'm referencing this today not just because of the anniversary of the event, of the event and the fact that it's near, but because when it comes to making your calling and your election sure in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have an item that we are to make every effort to add to our faith that is a sort of flag signal of Christian endeavor. It's the kind of uh, signal that could be hoisted up and it represents the testimony of this item that we are to add, this grace that we are to seek to add to our faith. Now hopefully you'll see better exactly what I mean here in a moment, but before we deal with that, we want to quickly refresh our minds as to where we are. What, are we, what is it we're talking about? What is it we've been doing? Well, Jesus teaches you in Matthew chapter 5 that as a Christian, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill, he said, cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This world, beloved, is a dark place filled with blind men, women, and children. Isaiah 59 tells you that men and women in this world do not know the way of peace. They don't know it. They don't have a knowledge of it. They don't have an understanding of the way of peace. They have made for themselves crooked paths. They've invented, or at least they imagine that they've done, invented them, new paths to joy and happiness that reject God and his word. And yet so often they're just the old paths. But those who tread on them will not know peace. They come up with these inventions. They come up with these new paths. They come up with this new trail they're going to follow. And they say at the end of this trail there's going to be peace. There's going to be joy. There's going to be happiness. There's going to be light. But it never comes because they're not the ways of peace. And consequently, they hope for light, but there's only darkness. They hope for brightness, but all they find is gloom. They grope like those who are blind, like those who have no eyes. And they stumble at noon and are more like dead men and women than living beings. Their transgressions are multiplied before God. Their sins testify against them. They go about denying the Lord and turning their back on him and rejecting his revealed will and in his word. They speak oppression and revolt, conceiving from their hearts lying words, Isaiah says. And if anyone departs from their ways, which they have determined, this is the new way, this is the way you need to go, this is the path you need to follow, and this is where we'll all find joy and happiness and relief and deliverance. If you depart from their ways, you become a prey. They descend on you and condemn you and attack you. This beloved of God is the world into which your Savior has sent you to be lights, to shine before these poor, sad souls lost in trespasses and sins with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the world into which you are sent. This is the world into which you are to bear testimony of the light of Jesus Christ. This dark world filled with blind men and women and children. You are to shine in this darkness the goodness and the hope of the gospel by loving God and others, not in word or in talk, but in deeds and in truth, John says. Now just by hearing the description of this dark world, hopefully you understand this is no simple task that you have. This darkness is deep and it's penetrating and it's the haunt of the enemy of all righteousness whose whole existence is given over to doing all that he can to obscure and hide the light and keep men, women, and children in the dark shadows of evil and in bondage. He will seize every opportunity and every occasion to his wicked advantage to keep men and women and children in the gloom of his kingdom and under the shadow of death 
That's his nature. That's what he does. It's what he always does. And he does not, he not only does all that he can to deepen the darkness among those who are lost, he also works to confuse and to agitate and to divide the light bearers to those who are called to dispel the, the darkness with the light of the gospel. He not only affects them, he works among us to bring confusion and division and to dim that light in the eyes of the dark world thereby. That's why the apostle says to all our brothers and sisters in Christ, things like we find in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25. Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, because this is coming on right before the, the great testimony of the witness of marriage and married people being together, often this statement is confined to marriages. And it's told to couples, you shouldn't go to bed angry with one another. You shouldn't let the sun go down in your wrath. You need to handle things before that happens. But when you take this testimony and you shrink it down to that example, you're taking it out of its context. Now this is much broader than that. All of you who are bearers of light, who have put away darkness and falsehood, then you are the ones who should speak truth with your neighbor because you're members one of another. And you're to be angry and sin not and not let the sun go down upon your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. In James chapter 4, verse 7, James says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And here's the, the need to resist the devil, the temptation. And James is not talking to unbelievers, he's talking to believers. And he's saying to those who are, who are the bearers of Christ's light into the world, resist the devil. And then, of course, you have Peter, with those famous words that most believers have heard many times. From 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And again, he's not saying to those who are out in the world, watch out for the devil. He's saying to you who are in Christ, watch out for the enemy. In this present age, he has known great success in dividing brethren and working havoc in the church and among the body of Christ at large through confusion and discord. So if we are going to venture out into this darkness with the light of Christ's love and the gospel, we must first be certain that we're walking in the light ourselves. We actually do have the gospel, and we do know the gospel ourselves, and we do believe the gospel ourselves. Secondly, we have to be properly armed for the fight. This is a dangerous thing 
spiritually, and we need to be armed for it and ready for it. And thirdly, we must be wholly dependent upon the grace of God for the work. Now, what we've been working on over the last month or so is this first necessity, confirming to our own heart and our own conscience the place that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, while recalling what the Holy Spirit says by Peter, and this is in Second Peter chapter one, beginning in verse eight. Second Peter one eight. For if these qualities, the things that we've been talking about over the last uh, few months, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. And so that's why we're doing this. We want to make sure that these things are ours so that we can go out into that fight and not have to worry about failing because of some lack of preparation of our own hearts. So with all that in mind, we've considered so far the importance of making every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge and your knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. And I don't want to take a poll. And I'm not going to. But I think it would be an interesting question. How have we been engaged in making every effort since we've been doing this to make sure that we are adding these things to our faith? Just remember what the word says. It's not enough to just be a hearer of the word. It's the doers of the word that are confirmed in their faith. Now, that brings us to the flag signal of Christian endeavor this morning. We come to consider adding brotherly affection now to our godliness. And that brings us back to that comment I made earlier about this being added to our Christian endeavor as being a sort of flag signal to the whole fleet of Christians joined together in the battle for souls. Now, as I say that, that's not to say that the other topics are less important, nor is it to say that this one is more important than any of the others, but it is to say this. The way this gift of the Spirit is presented to you in the Word of God, it reflects the spirit of that type of flag signal sent out to the fleet ready to do battle, and it is vital. It is absolutely vital. Let me just share with you, first of all, a quick overview of the idea of brotherly affection, and then we'll get down to the details. The grace of brotherly affection is to be expected among Christians. This loving of one another is to be done true-heartedly, genuinely, and earnestly, and it is to be ongoing and enduring in the body of Christ. And I hope maybe you can see how this is reminiscent of Nelson's flag signal. 
The captain of your salvation says this about brotherly affection. It is expected of believers to be sincerely and ardently loving one another without interruption for the duration. Now, I don't know what that would look like in a flag signal if I ran. It would probably take four, more than 40 minutes to put up. Um, but anyway, that's it. That's the message that comes out from, from this idea of brotherly affection. It is expected by the captain of your salvation. It is expected of you as believers to be sincerely and ardently loving one another without interruption for the duration of the battle. Now right away, I hope you can see that the, uh, some of the unique character of this work of faith. Because all that is expressed in the half dozen verses that speak of brotherly affection in the New Testament is in that one phrase that I've just repeated several times. Let's talk about the detail. First of all, let's look at the context. All right? In 2 Peter chapter 1, we've already read this, but let's just look at it again. Beginning in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. This, beloved, is a building process that you see here. Uh, that is, these various gifts tend to build off one another in a sense that they complement each other. Here you have this God-given faith. This wonderful, beautiful, glorious God-given faith where you put your trust and your confidence in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And you are now a new creature in Jesus Christ. Now the question is, what do I do with this faith? How do I now put it to use? And you begin by sincerely adding or earnestly seeking to add to it godly virtue. Believing the word you seek to apply it. You believe the word. What does the word say is godly virtue? You, you see what the word says because you believe it's the word of God. You add that. But then how do I know what is virtuous? And how to add it to my faith? Well, I add knowledge to my faith and my desire to be godly. So I get knowledge now. And because knowledge isn't enough, I supplement it with self-control. And for self-control to be profitable, it has to be steadfast, enduring with a true sense of godliness, all of which begin to manifest in me the love of God, loving not in word or in speech, but in deeds and in truth, loving my brethren affectionately, and then all men and women in a godly way. So that's the building that's going on here. These things complement each other and strengthen one another. Now, there's a threefold significance to this brotherly affection. The first thing is this. Anyone who loves God, truly loves God, will love his or her brother or sister for the Lord's sake. Anybody 
who truly loves God will love his or her brother and sister in the faith for the Lord's sake. As uh, Thomas Adams says, the spring of love flows from the fountain of godliness. If God so loved your brother and sister in Christ that he sent his only begotten son to die for him or her, it's obvious that godliness involves my delighting in loving him or her as well. That that's got to be a follow-up of this, a, a part of that. In 1 John 4.11, we read, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's obvious. If God so loved you and so loved them, <laughs> then it's obvious that we should love each other. Secondly, it is this brotherly affection that properly moderates your godliness. You know, we're commanded to be zealous in the good thing. But it's not good to have a boiling passion that ends up despising others. Or again, as Adams puts it, do not let the flames of zeal consume the moisture of charity or love. Yes, we're supposed to have a zeal for everything that's good and right and proper. But we're not to have such a hot passion in that zeal that we lose love for one another. Or in this case, even beyond that, and I'm, I'm stretching this into the next category, but into love in general. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, Paul says there, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Deferring to one another. Respecting one another. Never, beloved, has this been more important as a part of Christian character than it is right now. It's not just the rancor and the brittle nature of our national dialogue that makes this so important and so vital. But it's the very issues that are involved. We're dealing with fundamental concerns of faith and freedom. There are those wielding power and influence in our culture right now whose avowed aim it is to bring things to full stop. Don't be deluded. They are out there, and they want to bring everything to a full stop and begin a reset that attempts to bring us all into a brave new world. That's not a conspiracy theory. It is a conspiracy reality. It is out there. Those, those determinations are out there. And it's a path of darkness deliberately designed to carry our society away from God and into the celebration of the divinity of mankind and with the state operating as the chief manifestation of that divinity. And the enemy of God and all mankind is gleefully assisting in this in every way he can. And it's being done or accomplished by a series of draconian strikes at things that are precious and sacred to us. And this process is designed to, to keep us off balance, to keep us frustrated, to keep us discouraged. And they're all things which then lead to testiness and frayed nerves and a thinning of patience. Christian brothers and sisters, 
need to commit to prayer and earnestness to display the kind of love called for in such times so that they may be by their love a bright counterpoint to the gloomy edginess that prevails in the world around them. You have people out there who disagree with one another. I'm talking about in the world. And they want to fight, and they want to argue, and they want to denigrate one another, and they want to shame one another, and they want to try to destroy one another. In the body of Christ, we also have people who at times disagree with one another. But the difference is, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, committed to loving one another, as Christ would have us love each other. And so what we have is an atmosphere where there can be difference, but no lack of love. Where there can be difference of opinion and position, but no lack of affection. And you see, beloved, that's what bears testimony to the world. They look and they say, well, we can't possibly disagree without hating each other. And they look in the church and they say, well, there are people who disagree on things and they love each other. How can they do that? And what's the answer? Christ. Christ in you. The love of Christ in you. Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that bears a light in the darkness of this world. And lastly here, it's this very thing, brotherly affection, that is the evidence of the successful addition of godliness to one's faith. The Savior said in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. Now, Dr. Bible in Sunday school this morning brought up some very just plain statements about what was essential faith. And they were very plain in what they said. They said, if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. Period. It's not hard to figure out. It's not complex. This falls into that category too, doesn't it? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You want the world to know that you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Love each other. And that will show it to them. Later, John would be inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, to write to us this expansion of it in 1 John chapter 4, as we read earlier. This is 1 John 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And then down in verse 21, he says, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So that's the context. What is the word? What what, what are we dealing with? What is brotherly affection? Well, it just means you're a Philadelphian. Now, you may not want to think of yourself as being from Philadelphia. Um, I happen to like Philadelphia, but, you know, I was born near there, so that may have something to do with my affection for it. But this doesn't have to do with the city of Philadelphia on the East Coast. It has to do with brotherly affection. And actually, the word is Philadelphian. That's a transliteration of the Greek. 
This word reflects the idea of love to the faithful. That is, love toward others who are filled with faith, the same faith that you possess. It is love toward one born in the same way as you are, born as a brother or a sister, and in this case, by the same gospel. That's the idea. You've come out of the same womb, as it were, the womb of the gospel. Now, the love referred to here denotes strength of feeling. It springs from passion or instinct. There's a real love for the person. And it's found, and delight is found in showing that love to that person. So there's real love, and there's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a passionate kind of thing, and there's a delight in doing it. It's the result, beloved, of our mystical union together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to think of it on that level. It's a matter of our mystical union together in Christ. It differs from the call to love that follows it even here, where it says, then add to brotherly affection, add to that love. That's a different kind of love. And it's different because this relates to that mystical nearness and dearness that we have. We are bound together by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are under the influence of the same word and the same spirit. Thomas Adams again says, the principal attractive congregating and combining power in the world to draw together heaven and earth, sea and land, east and west, Jews and Gentiles, and to make one of two of ten of thousands of all is the gospel, the bond of our Christian covenant, which makes us all one in the Lord Jesus. It's not friendly affection. Friendly affection is different. We have people who are our friends. And it's easy for us to love them because they're our friends. It's not spousal affection. We have a love for our spouse because uh, she or he is the one we're in love with and we're drawn to them. This is a different kind of love, beloved. It is a love born of our mystical union in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to do with... You know, did you ever come across somebody whose face you just didn't like? You ever had it? You just, you know, you, you, you meant and you just... I just don't... I can't warm up to that person. We've all had those experiences, I think. And then we have those people whose faces... They just, they, we react to them. And they're friendly and we feel friendly with them. That's not this. That's not what's going on here. This doesn't have to do with a friendly looking face or whether we're attracted to somebody in that way or not. It has to do with the mystical union we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 4 through 6, Paul says this, There is one body and one spirit just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. 
One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's based on that union that this brotherly affection is to be shown. So what is its character? That's what it means, but what is its character? Well, the first thing is, beloved, it's expected. And we already touched on this in the flag signal, but it's expected. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is writing in verses 9 and 10 to the Thessalonian church, and he says, Now concerning brotherly love or brotherly affection, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Paul says, I don't need to write to you about this. I don't need to tell you to exercise brotherly affection. You've been taught by God, by the Spirit of God in you that you need to have that sort of love for one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, he goes on and says, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. And he says, you don't need for me to tell you about this, but you do need me to urge you to do it more and more. This gift of brotherly affection is to be looked for among brethren simply because it is the work of God's grace in the heart of the believer. It's one of the things that God does when he makes you a new creature in Jesus Christ is give to you love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's one of the things he endows you with. And that's why it's listed here as one of the things to make your calling and election sure. Because if you're surely in Jesus Christ then you surely have this affection to some degree. I've used this illustration before, but it's been a long time and it fits well here. My brother lives in West Virginia, as many of you know. He used to work in a hardware and department store up in the mountains. And I went to visit him, and he told me, just come to the store. And it was a pretty large concern under the circumstances. It wasn't a big department store by big city standards, but by West Virginia Hill and Mountain standards, it was a big place. And I'd never been there before. And I walked in, and I walked up to the service desk and uh, that was in the middle of the, of the store. And the man behind the counter looked up and said, oh, you must be Bob Fisher's brother. He's upstairs in the furniture department. a chance to say a word while I was there or what I was doing there and my brother hadn't told them I was coming and so after they called my brother down all the proper introductions were made and so on I asked the man behind the counter how in the world did you know I was Bob's brother and he smiled and said you have the same forehead and receding hairline <laughs> he expected in Bob's brother to see that, and he saw it, because he was expecting it. Because it is a manifestation of true godliness, beloved, the Christian expects to see brotherly affection from a brother or sister in Christ, and has a right to expect it. It is that native, and therefore called brotherly love and affection, testified by action which ought to be and in some measure is in God's children mutually. As the appearance of God's grace in them, it ought to be expected among them. Remember Nelson's signal? England expects that every man will do his duty. 
And we can paraphrase that for our use here and say that the family of God expects that every man or woman will manifest brotherly affection. Secondly, it's genuine, sincere, and earnest. Martin Luther puts it this way. He says, brotherly love without any gloss, hypocrisy, or dissimulation. Gloss is any shine. You know, one of the things that we've been dealing with is replacing the pulpit. You can't tell it so much from where you are, but this is just a plywood pulpit. And if I pulled pretty hard on the top here, the nails would come out and uh, the lid would come off. And when you're watching online on a high-definition camera, uh, and, and don't do this <laughs> if you're watching, but you can look down the bottom and you can see where the plywood's all chipped away, and it looks pretty poor. But we've shined it up and put flowers in front of it to put a gloss on it, so it'll look better than it really is. And that's what gloss is. It's putting a facade out to make something appear better than it really is. Brotherly affection isn't like that. It doesn't put out a facade or a pretense of love. It's genuine, it's earnest, it's real. It's not hypocritical, it's not dissimulation, not false. In 1 Peter, the apostle puts it this way, in verse 22 of 1 Peter chapter 1. This is down later in the chapter where we've been in. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly and from a pure heart, since you have been born not again of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living God and abiding word of God. Through the living and abiding word of God, excuse me. Here he calls for it to, to be earnestly, from, shown from a pure heart. Paul speaks of it. Uh, both to the Romans and the Thessalonians. And he says this in Romans 12.10. We already looked at it. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another. And there's the energy of it and the earnestness of it in showing honor. And to the Thessalonians, he says, Now concerning brotherly, brotherly love, as we read already, you have no need anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do it more and more. Add more energy to it. Add more earnestness to it as you manifest it. We can't emphasize enough just how important it is to seek this gift of love from the Lord. First, let me say that where we come short in it, we have a Redeemer and a Savior. And if you're sitting there this morning and saying, this is not something that has really been an active and energetic part of my life, well, you have a Redeemer, and, and you can put that aside through the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the time to confess that and repent of it and determine to add it to your faith. Not to save yourself, but to confirm in your own heart the faith that you do have. The very nature of the thing shows you that this is not something that is born of nature. We have friends and family that we love, as I said earlier, naturally, as well as in a spiritual sense. 
But often the natural character of love helps the supernatural along. But in the body of Christ, it's the other way around. In other words, obviously I love my wife. And the Spirit of God helps me to love her as I should in Christ. So that natural love is is uh, enhanced by the spiritual character of that love too. But in the body of Christ, it's the other way around. It's the gift of the Spirit that helps the natural man or woman overcome what may not be there naturally. To produce that affection that isn't there by nature, but is there by the work of the Spirit in the heart of the believer. Lastly, this grace is such that it works in ways that clearly demonstrate that it's not a natural thing. But a matter born out of faith and generated in us by God the Holy Spirit. William Guge says of it, So violent and irresistible is the power of love as it will pass through all difficulties and overthrow all obstacles. Just stop there and think, is this the kind of brotherly affection I possess? That is so violent and so irresistible that it will pass through all difficulties and overthrow all obstacles. It will not be hindered from doing the good it should do. Not by anything. In Hebrews 13.1, it said simply this way, let brotherly love continue. Let it endure. Let it go on. As we've often seen today, this matter is more vital than ever. And it's at the very heart of every other Christian duty that we owe to one another. It's essential that it flow uninterrupted and undisturbed through the body of Christ. It's also vital that it not flag or fail under the pressures of the flesh or of the pressures of the world or the enemy. Again, Guru says, love is an especial means of strengthening and establishing the kingdom of Christ. It unites the subjects and members of that kingdom in one, which is a means of great stability. Many weak wands or reeds, fast and close bound together, cannot be easily broke asunder. Kingdoms, cities, all manner of civil societies are established by the mutual love of the members thereof. The kingdom of Satan and all evil societies are strengthened by this means. Should not then the members of Christ's kingdom love one another? Nothing can be of more force to work union than mutual love, and nothing of more force to strengthen society than union. Beloved, this being a gift of the Holy Spirit, let's pledge together to pray for its own ongoing and enduring manifestation among us. Maybe you're, you're sitting there and saying, I would like to see more love from my brethren. Well, then pray for it. Pray for God to establish it in our hearts. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I would like to love more than I do, my brethren. Pray for it. Ask God for it. This is a gift of the Spirit. It's not a gift of nature. It's a gift. It's a mystical union that produces this love. 
And that's where we need to go, to the Lord, to have it among us, so that others can see by our love for one another the light of the gospel in us. And we can shine out there in this dark, sad world with the light and the joy, the blessing, the security, the peace, the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray for this gift among us. We know that uh, we love one another. We manifest that love often in, in many ways. But Lord, we think of Paul's admonition to the Thessalonians who said, I know you have it. Now seek to do it more and more. And Lord, that's what we're praying for. That we might do it more and more. That we might be a, a shining light in this dark world and bear testimony to the love of Christ in our hearts and in our lives both as individuals and as a body of believers. Lord, where we have allowed our natural reactions to things to dull our love, we pray that you would forgive us. Where we're weak, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us. And where we're strong, we pray that you would humble us. And Lord, endow this body with an overwhelming spirit of brotherly affection. Because we need it more than ever, Lord, as we move forward in this world. And as we commit ourselves to being more and more in the world as a light set on a hill. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is without that hope, who can see because they have no love for the brethren that maybe they're without Christ in the world, we pray, Father, that you would even now speak to their hearts. Give them a, a desire to covet the best gifts and to find those gifts by confessing their sins repenting of them, seeking forgiveness for them in the Lord Jesus Christ, and coming into the body of Christ, and finding the joy of adding to faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and so on, all the way up to brotherly affection. These things we ask and pray for, Lord, for one another and for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.